You don't really necessarily have to have a lot of money to start. You just have to have time and passion because I spent a lot of time, which equates to money in the long run. If you've got a passion and you can't turn it into an income stream, then that's a hobby. That was Akilah Darden, founder of the Darden Group, and Audrey Taylor, co-founder of NetLogic, talking about entrepreneurship as diverse women. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. This podcast is brought to you by Cummins, Inc. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on the second episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with yours truly, Angela B. Freeman. You'll recall that on our inaugural episode, we spoke with Kelly Jones, the first African-American or black female venture capitalist in Indiana and co-founder of Be Nimble and 68 Capital. 68 Capital is an Indianapolis-based seed stage venture capital firm supporting diverse founders and particularly black, Latinx, women, and LGBTQ plus led startups in the Midwest. So to expound on my conversation and learnings with Kelly, on this second podcast, I wanted to speak with diverse female founders, entrepreneurs, and business owners. So today we're chatting with two diverse women who have founded and built businesses in technical industries like STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. First, I'd like to welcome Akilah Darden. Akila is the founder and president of the Darden Group, LLC, which is an executive construction management company that assists in the strategy, process, and management of complex commercial construction projects, such as one Akila is managing at 38th and Sheridan. Not only is Akila an African-American female founder of her own construction firm since 2019, Akila has also recently taken on a new corporate role as the Director of Design and Construction, Diversity and Inclusion for IU Health Systems. So I'm so excited to have Akila join me here today. Welcome, Akila. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome my good friend, Audrey Taylor. Audrey is the founder and CEO of NetLogix, a highly award-winning information technology consulting services company that helps her clients survive and thrive in these challenging times. Audrey started her business over 20 years ago, which is based here in Indianapolis and is now active in eight states. I must say publicly that Audrey's also a mentor and champion of mine due to our mutual love and shared leadership of Women in High Tech, a local nonprofit organization where we both served as president. In fact, Audrey was instrumental in mentoring and encouraging me to become the first diverse and African-American president of Women in High Tech. So I'm super excited to welcome Audrey to the Freedom Forum. Welcome, Audrey. Thank you, Angela. So before we dive into our topics here today, a recent report indicated that pursuing passions was the top motivator for women to start their own businesses. So I'm going to start with you, Akila, and then go to Audrey and ask you both to please briefly tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and what drivers or passions led you to start your own business. Thank you, Angela, and thank you for thinking of me. I am a mother of four kids. I have identical twin daughters who are seven, and my sons are nine and 11. I've been married 14 years uh, last month, actually. And I am from the D.C. metro area. I've been here about six years in Indianapolis. I have a Bachelor of Science degree in architectural engineering, 
I have a master's with a concentration in finance, and I've been in the construction industry for 22 years. Wow. I decided to start my business. Actually, in 2018, I was going to start, and I had a general contractor that needed some assistance with gaining work. So I put that on hold, worked with him for a year. During that year, in 2019, the city of Indianapolis came out with a disparity study stating that there weren't that many diverse contractors, and then there weren't that many that were effective and successful. And being in construction for 22 years, working for some major general contractors in D.C., I knew I probably had the tools that I could give um, diverse subcontractors that would allow them to be successful. The majority of my projects were on time and within budget, and we exceeded diverse participation. So in 2019, December, I took my passion of um, mentoring and uh, mentoring diverse subcontractors specifically and people in the STEM field, I was like, I can do this. Let me give them the cliff notes. Let me mentor them so they can be successful and they can grow. Not only grow, but reach as they climb and hire diverse workforce. So it was a passion of helping others. It was a passion of, you know, success through adversity through my career that even if you are diverse, that you actually have a strength to do things that you want to do. And um, I must say my favorite quote is, um, it's always impossible till it's done. Yeah. And that's by Nelson Mandela. And so I, what I try to do is ignite the fire in people that their passion can turn into a business. Yeah, that's awesome. Audrey? So I'm Audrey Taylor. Um, I'm originally a native of the Northwest of England, um, halfway between Manchester and Liverpool. Something that we might as well get out there because my accent is what most people hear and see first when they meet me. Um, I'm a mom too. I have a 24 year old and a 21 year old. So I'm very impressed with what Akila can manage with small children. Um, And NetLogix is our third child. So my husband and I actually formed the business in 1998. Um, I'd had a business back in the UK, but when I wanted to start to travel, I needed to come to the United States as an immigrant. So I needed a visa. And that meant I had to have a job with a company. So I went through that process. I'd had a child. I was looking for what I wanted to do next. And being back in charge of my own destiny was really, really important for me. You asked about education. I think that is something that potentially makes me very different to the other people in the room today. Um, I went to high school in England and I continued on till I was 18 and took what would be the equivalent of entrance exams for college and then took a gap year. And I'm still on my gap year. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the longest gap year in history. Um, I was looking for, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was looking at business opportunities. I was looking at computer science. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, I could take a gap year, but my parents were very clear. We don't have a lot of money in our family. So they were very clear I would work. And I was offered two jobs. Um, one was with an insurance company where they would train me in computers. And I basically did what the boot camp companies teach now so I was in a company and they taught us a boot camp programming course and from there on I moved through the computer science I did professional qualifications outside of college so I did get qualifications inside in computer languages different technologies and truthfully it was the best thing I ever did I have been able to travel you're a lawyer if you wanted to go practice law in England you'd have to get some new qualifications computer science is computer science the whole world over yeah so it's given me Tremendous opportunities that I didn't know at the time I was going to do that. And then for the business itself, we come from the northwest of England. It's a very matriarchal part of the country. And because of that, 
it's quite comfortable for women to be in charge. The tradition of the working man bringing the wages home and the mom managing the money. That's something we grow up with. And my son's told me that he uses it as a litmus test for people. So he'll say, oh yeah, my mom and dad own a company, but mom's the boss. And if people go, wow, that's so cool, they're a good person. And if you go, yeah, she doesn't really, you're judged. So I think it's really interesting that my children have grown up aware of that. They're very comfortable with the arrangements we have in our life. But I am a person who's taken a different path. And I think it's very important that I tell people that. It's never too late to take an opportunity. It's never too late to. You've got a ton of a learned experience no matter how you got your education. So I think it's important that we celebrate people who've gone other routes than education. Absolutely. See, that's why I was so glad to have you all tell us your backgrounds because I think it's important for our listeners to know that everybody does not come from a traditional background and it doesn't require a traditional background to be successful. I think that's particularly important for aspiring and diverse entrepreneurs to hear your journey and what keeps you motivated. And I'll admit that I asked you ladies on this program together with a specific purpose, and that's to identify and highlight some of the similarities and differences that you've each experienced as diverse founders of STEM businesses. So to launch this conversation, I'd like to start where we left off with Kelly, discussing the funding or the lack of funding or venture capital funding specifically for diverse entrepreneurs. Audrey, you mentioned you started NetLogix over 20 years ago. When I suspect the financial and funding mechanisms available to women and diverse founders may or may not have been uh, the same or significantly different than what Akila may have uh, experienced just more recently in 2018 and 2019. So, Audrey, please tell us how you were able to fund the beginning of NetLogic. And then, Akila, I'd like to hear how you were able to fund the launch of the Darden Group. So, NetLogic has always been 100% self-funded. So for several years in that journey, we would openly talk about how we bootstrapped ourselves. Everything was in a collective pool. It was all put at risk. And for the first, so we started in 98 and until 2003, my husband had a real job because that was the security blanket. We were very fortunate he had a job that would allow that and we were given the opportunity to grow NetLogix and pursue it. The conversation to take all the eggs into the one basket of we will be able to support our family for the next period of time was a really serious conversation. And he always jokes that I said, well, if we're going to do it, we'll do it right. But it was a huge risk. Over the course of that journey, I can see now the pros and cons to doing things both ways. If it's your own money, it's your own choice. And I know we've made choices that were passion projects not necessarily the best business investment. We've got wiser about that over the years. And then also having outside financial input creates a structure and an accountability that we took several years to develop. We had an outside board of advisors that we hired and we worked with and they held us accountable because at a certain point, there's a lot of pats on the back from people who were saying, oh, you run a company, you're doing really well, you're doing really well, but are you doing as well as you could do? Sure. So that challenge is what we stepped into and used the board of advisors to drive us to have that conversation going forward. So that's my main takeaway is that we've learned from that. But then the truth of the matter is when it was time for me to realize that the company needed to actually start to have its own funding source, it needed to be, for want of a better word, its own credit history, I went to the bank that we'd been banking with for 
eight, nine years at the time. Significant revenues going through that bank. And I went in there and I allowed them to treat me a certain way. And I do acknowledge my own part in that journey because I allowed that conversation to be structured a certain way. And I said, I need a line of credit. I've been advised that I would need a line of credit to cover at least two months. We pay twice a month, so I needed one month's worth of salary. If we were gonna be able to scale and grow, I needed to be able to cover salaries. That that was the amount I was looking for. Right. And they gave me a form to fill in and I filled it in and they gave me $25,000. My credit card had a higher credit limit. So it was not about my credit worthiness, it was about that I wasn't being taken seriously. However, I have to acknowledge that I didn't go in armed and informed with the information and I've helped several other female businesses to prepare for that conversation and to tell the bank how they're going to scale because you have to manage that conversation. And that was something that didn't come naturally to me and I don't think has come naturally to many of the businesswomen I know and I'm comfortable having these conversations with. But I think it's important that I put that conversation out there. We have a very different banking relationship now but it was, you know, it's owning your own destiny is huge. And I think as a woman, we're too willing to be too conservative with money and we need to push ourselves out there and ask those uncomfortable questions and demand what is the right amount of money for ourselves. That's awesome. Yeah. That that That's great learning, Audrey, and, and, and transparency and vulnerability, right? I mean, I've known you many years. I don't know all your financial history. So, but, but I appreciate you sharing that with us because that's what aspiring business owners need to know. Mm-hmm. You know, you can start whatever you want, but when it gets to that point where it's time to scale and grow, you are going to need some funding revenue and you need to think of, preemptively about what your plan is, what that looks like, and what you really need. So thank you for that. Akila, tell us how you got the Darden Group started. Well, so I had the idea in 2019. I started, I got the LLC January. So I worked with the company for a year before I started the Darden Group. January 2020 is when we really got started. We started branding and social media. And then eight weeks later, I had four coworkers in elementary school because of the pandemic. So, and this plays into the funding. We are a two income household and always have been. So I knew I was gonna be an entrepreneur at some point. So I invested for a year in that company that I was helping and I took out my 401k. So I started uh, with $15,000 from the 401k just as a cushion to make sure that my husband slept at night because he's a regional director for Goodwill. We had a pandemic. We had four kids. Uh, We went down to a one-income household. As an entrepreneur, I knew I had a gift of people and conversations and relationships. One thing I did well when I was in corporate America is I had a CPA that did our taxes. So I had a relationship already about money. I had a conversation with him to say, hey, we're down to one income. What do I need to do? He advised me because of that relationship. I also had a relationship with my bank because I was always banking with them and they were excited to open up another account, of course. And they saw that my longevity with the bank. So I had a relationship to get a line of credit if I needed it. I also had a good credit score. But with my business, it's a little bit different. You are a consultant to uh, construction companies and owners. So I spent a lot of my time doing marketing and media. When the pandemic hit, I knew everyone was going to be in front of their computer. So a lot of the things that I did was just talk about the projects I've built, 
gain trust because I am an African-American female from the D.C. area, now in Indianapolis, telling people I built $2 billion in construction. Nobody's going to believe that, right? So I needed to show myself on the job site, boots to the ground, that I was facilitating work. This is a process I use. Here's five tips for project managers. Here's how to communicate with the superintendent. Here's how to find diversity. And then I beefed up the diversity conversations um, with the social injustices so that people could see that you can get diversity on the project. You can be successful. You can grow businesses. You can grow individuals into businesses. And then as I started getting um, traction, I started putting money into social media and into marketing and publications and getting my name out there because when people see success, then they start trending in that direction. So to say funding, you don't really necessarily have to have a lot of money to start. You just have to have time and passion because I spent a lot of time, which equates to money in the long run. But I would say even if we didn't have my husband's income, um, I think it was just a drive and staying up late at night and figuring out what the branding is going to be, who are my clients, maximizing my relationships to where, um, do you know someone that's building something? Can I get in front of them? And then I had that cushion of money just in case we had a a bump in the road or something with mortgages and stuff like that. See, I I so appreciate that. I mean, I'll be very frank. I've never had the aspiration to be an entrepreneur because I'm risk averse. Like that (laughs) is so much risk. And now that I'm in the position I'm in as an attorney where I deal with and represent so many entrepreneurs, the risk is so real. And certainly that's even more, um, even greater when you're the mom, right? And you got babies to worry about and make sure everybody gets fed at night. And so I can appreciate the challenges. So thank you all for sharing those stories. That is super important and impressive. I have something to add that I think is, so I think, I think we are are risk takers I think I've learned that so as we've grown and we've scaled and we've brought other people in conversations about what we'll bid on what will what we'll pursue are we hiring more people the risk tolerance that I have is different and we we do personality testing so I know I'm suited for the role I'm in I'm comfortable in that slightly uncomfortable space that other people aren't right and surrounding myself with those kind of people creates a balance but one of the things that I think is important for anybody who's an entrepreneur or a budding entrepreneur you're right you're going to spend nights and evenings it really is my third child you know you're up late with a kid you're up late with the business the proposal has to go in and when you don't have a big team you're the one putting the extra hours in so your passion has to be that thing about you never work a day if it's something you love you work a lot of hours if you own your own business so people need to be realistic about that which means you have to know how you're going to turn it into an income stream. Right. If you've got a passion and you can't turn it into an income stream, then that's a hobby. Right. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. And you can pursue something else and support that hobby. But if you're not going to be able to finance yourself. And what we were told early on in a business class that we got involved in is we've all had homes that we've prepared to sell to get top dollar for that home so we can move. Mm-hmm. If somebody buys your business, the first year after they buy it, they will make more money than you do because they won't pursue hobbies and they won't have nice ideas. They will run it as a business. So if you're not running your business as a business, you are frittering away money. Yeah, And that is an important thing to take home every night. And is this the right thing to be spending money on? Because you're right, I do have to feed my kids. I do have to 
you know, support organizations I'm passionate about. But it, that comes down to where am I spending my money? Yeah. So being wise in how we spend that and how we manage the business and planning where your salary is going to come from. You took all the right steps. You knew what your trajectory was. But then you have to know when income's going to come in. You can't start a business and think you'll pay other people first. If you can't pay yourself, that's not a business. And, and let me let me just ask, um, where do you get that money education? Like, because certainly, Akila, I know, you know, culturally, we're not taught about money and finances. And that's typically because there's not enough money to be teaching you about money and finances, right? (laughs) We're not taught about investment. We're not taught about 401ks. I can readily admit that this is all coming new to me as I'm an adult and, you know, working in a job where those things, but my parents weren't teaching me about those things when I was a child. And when I, you know, you need to make sure and invest in this and, you know, those things. So when, when you are that budding entrepreneur, where where do you get that money education, that finance education, if you haven't gotten it from college and if you haven't gotten it from your parents? Yeah. Where does that come from? So we didn't come from money. I mean, my parents, my mom's the first person in her family to own a home. My dad's parents did own a home, but it had taken them a long time. So I don't come from a wealthy background. And anybody who is from England can hear in my accent, they know exactly that I don't come from a wealthy background. I know Americans just hear an English accent, but I didn't grow up with that education. That's the job I have taken upon myself to better understand and better inform myself. It started with the conversations with the CPA. I had a friend who had a business and I asked for a referral to their CPA. I met that CPA with a baby in a stroller and the baby took the train set and we played trains and they explained it. They then over time started to help me understand how to manage it. They introduced me to a financial advisor and I have gone with people that I trust and that know that at the end of this adventure, I want to be secure. Right. I'm never Absolutely. I'm never going to be so risk averse that I'm going to do the wild and wacky idea. Yeah. Things usually are too good to be true. So I've gone at it that way. One of the nicest pieces of advice I've got from um, a business professor that I work with is that he said, I take advice well. So I will listen to why somebody, I love to meet other entrepreneurs. It really doesn't matter what your business is. Most of the problems of a business are the same, regardless of whether you construct, you sell widgets or you sell consulting services. The problems are the same. So that community has been fantastic for me to learn from, but it is finding people you can trust and you have to have the honest, vulnerable conversation. I don't know what I'm doing. What should I be doing next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Akila, you have any comments here before we kind of move on? Absolutely. Ask questions. Um, If you don't have a network, you know one person. And ask that one person, do you know anyone that owns a business? Um, Ask questions about what you don't know. Know your weaknesses and be able to be confident to ask the question. But more importantly, when you ask the question, take notes. And by the end of the conversation, ask for two other people that you can talk to to gain more information. There's so much knowledge out there, whether it's 401k or what is net profit versus gross. So this is the biggest thing. If any entrepreneur, you have to understand gross versus net because a lot of people want to go after big things, but the net is small. Some small things that have a small gross, you net more. But having those conversations, I found people who were successful in business 
And I just went up to them or emailed them or linked into them and said, I like what you're doing. Do you have five minutes? Um, I'm interested in doing this. And put it out there. Put in the atmosphere that this is what you want to do. And um, get the people that are very good at that space. You don't have to be good at everything. Your your network is truly your net worth. And it's it's for real. But one thing I would say is fortune in the follow-up. When somebody gives you information follow up with them, and more importantly, list the things that you've gained from that conversation and to thank them for their time. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Cummins, Inc. Cummins, Inc., a global power solutions leader, is proud to partner with IBJ's The Freedom Forum. For Cummins, diversity and inclusion is a core value of our company, and we are committed to creating work environments and communities that are welcoming to all people. Combined with technological innovation, diversity and inclusion is a critical element of Cummins' continued success. It's how we attract and retain top talent and better serve our customers around the world and create stronger communities. I wanted to start with the funding conversation, A, to segue from what we talked with Kelly about, but just uh, we know that that funding or lack of funding is such a big contributor to why women-owned businesses and businesses generally, but specifically women and diverse-owned businesses don't succeed. So I wanted to start there, but we're all women in STEM. So I also wanted to put some data out there because I know there's always this kind of um, question as to why are we harping on, you know, women-owned businesses and diverse entrepreneurs. And and the reality is because the data is, is stark for mm-hmm. um, the population. And, and representation of women in business. In fact, according to a 2021 report from the U.S. Department of Commerce based on 2018 data, women-owned businesses made up about 19.9% or less than 20% of U.S. companies that employed people. Mm-hmm. And this report also indicates that Caucasian or white women own 82.8% of those businesses. So that means non-white women are basically owning about that same 19.8% or less than 20% of women-owned businesses. Now that number kind of creeps up to about 26.4% when other minorities women, possibly LGBTQ or maybe immigrant women are considered, but the numbers just get worse from there with only about 1% of women-owned businesses being owned by women uh, women or female veterans. So Mm -hmm. obviously the numbers are not great in our favor. One uh, uh, shining light, according to this data, is that about 16.8% of women-owned businesses in 2018 were classified in professional, scientific, or technical services sectors. And that's compared to only about 14.3% of those same firms amongst all businesses. So at least according to this data, it seems that while women are not equally represented as business owners overall, they do seem to be have a slightly higher representation in STEM spaces, so that's mm-hmm. encouraging. But given this background and this landscape, I'd like to begin addressing some business challenges that you have each encountered that you believe are directly associated or correlated with you being a diverse woman. And Audrey, you've already mentioned some of that around the funding conversation and, and the banking conversation. Um, Akilah, from your vantage point, as an African-American woman entrepreneur, are there any obstacles or challenges you believe you've 
you've experienced specifically because you are a diverse woman in construction or engineering fields? Yes, every day. <laughs> so uh, I just want to put it out there. You are going to be challenged every day. Um, I walk in, I am African-American, I'm female, and I look young, pre-kids. Um, so <laughs> in baseball, you struck out, right? So there's not a lot of people that are like, oh, she's going to knock it out of the park and she's here because she has all these um, you know, letters behind her name. It was like, oh, here she comes, right? She's either safety or a secretary. So when... There's no expectation. It's easy to uh, exceed expectations. Absolutely. I know with my parents instilled in me, when you have a seat, utilize your seat and make sure you are the best at what you do and you bring somebody else with you. So um, I know every single meeting I have to be on my A game and I have to be problem solving something, right? So that they're like, you know what? She is knowledgeable. And I spend the first 30 seconds of whatever it is I'm answering to let people know that technically I'm savvy. And here is a process, I'm process driven, of how we can solve this one problem that everyone is talking about. There are challenges in every aspect, whether it is on the construction site in the trailer, there's not a lot of women, first off, and there's not a lot of diversity, and there's not a lot of women who are diverse, and there's a (laughs) lot of conversations that happen um, in in an all-male, white male-dominated space, and it's um, confidence is one. Yeah. I spent a lot of times in bathrooms and on the job sites, you know, trying to fix my face and get my attitude together. But what I did do is I had enough um, confidence to address when it happened, like that's not appropriate or, you know, my feelings are hurt because you said this, that and a third, because some conversations are just conversations and they don't realize that it could impact someone else, whether it's age, gender, race. And I did that. So then people were cognizant, like, wait, maybe I need to think about what I say before I say it. So there's conversations verbally. There's the uh, microaggressions that I try to address as well because people don't realize unless you tell them that that might not be appropriate or that's um, inappropriate or you might offend somebody. And being out in the field, are you lost? You know, just trying to gain information because I didn't grow up in construction. I thought I was going to be an architect. So when I go out in the field to learn means and methods, it's, um, you are you okay? Uh, are you lost? Um, this is a job site. So then it's having that conversation so that I have less conversations as the job goes on. They're like, no, 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 she's an engineer. Now she's a manager. No, she's an executive. Because I had those one-off conversations about, no, this is who I am. This is why I'm here. How can I help you? And then in turn, we, we all win. So that's the construction site. That's the construction trailer. And then um, a hard hat in general is, is another conversation. There's a lot of microaggressions and adversities there. And then it's also on the flip side, I was the person that had to speak at a lot of events um, because I was in construction and I was African-American and female because you're trying to show the industry that we can do it. We are multitaskers. We can be successful. And we are here. And right? we are here. People don't believe that there are diverse women in, the, in, in particularly your field. Right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we need to capture those individuals in the first one or two years because not a lot of people stay. You right. have to have tough skin, but you also have to pivot and be adaptable to say that I'm going to have steel toes and a hard hat and a safety vest walking in concrete or rebar. But in turn, in 10 hours or eight hours, I got to put an evening gown on and stilettos. So yeah. just being adverse and being able to speak to all sure. people, whether it's a laborer or a billion dollar business owner looking to do construction. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And that that's just a dynamic experience, which I appreciate. So, Audrey, I'm going to go to you. What ironies or insights have you gleaned as an immigrant woman, founder of an IT services business operating in the U.S., particularly during our current societal and political climate, where there seems to be such animus toward immigrants? Yet, if I may be so blunt as to speculate, that unlike Akilah and myself, who are American-born, African-American, Black women, you likely experience daily business life with many of the privileges of being a native-born Caucasian or white woman. Maybe I'm speculating, so I want to ask. If that's the case, how does that affect you? How does it affect your business? How does it affect your unique perspective on diversity and equity in business generally? That's a really good question. One of our states that we work in is New Mexico. So it's very much tribal lands and New Mexico as a state government recognizes that and I'm really impacted by the intent they put behind that. Everybody else in this country is an immigrant. Some by choice and you're not by choice originally. I mean, your generation comes from people who didn't have a choice about coming here. I got on an airplane and came here and was welcomed. And I've been welcomed by so many people who've got family trees that go back in England. Um, English people don't really trace our family trees that extensively because we're just English. And we don't trace our family trees. So all these people that I meet and they've got, tend to be related to families that have famous names or castles or landowning and things like that. I always try to tell people that unless you're great-great-great-grandfather was a black sheep of the family and was shipped out for some terrible thing he'd done. The rich didn't leave England. They're all still there. They might own parts of the United States, but they didn't leave. The people who left, left for a better opportunity. Everybody comes here for a better opportunity. People standing in refugee camps are coming for a better opportunity because they don't have what they need where they are. And with climate change, who knows what we're all going to face in the future. So I find it very interesting that I can have a conversation with somebody and they will say to me things about immigrants and I will point out, well, I am an immigrant. And I'll be told, well, you're not that kind of immigrant. And I'm like, no, I'm the kind who came over here and works here and pays my taxes just like every other immigrant does. So it's been very interesting. I find it very, um, probably the only political tweets I do because I'm cautious. And in England, we don't talk about money, religion or politics. So I tend not to do that as much as maybe other people do. Um, but when they start to talk about people with H-1B visas and there's an H-1B, that's how I came here. Every single person who's ever had a paycheck from NetLogix had it because I, and then individually my husband, because we weren't married when we first came here, got H-1B visas. And every dollar we came, we came with $500, a paycheck because I had a job, and an American Express card because I've been told if I got an English one and flipped it, I'd at least have some credit history when I came here. So I am the definition of an immigrant. One suitcase, one credit card, and $500 in a job. I don't know why it's different, but people hear my accent and I get a free pass. And I would even question if I potentially get, in many circumstances, a free pass over a regular old American woman because most people hear my accent and give me credit for something that's not really there. You're hearing something in an accent that's nothing to do with my background, my education, my ability, but you've been trained that somehow 
English people are something different. I love that. And you mm-hmm. and I have not had that conversation outright over the years that we've had these conversations. You've kind of hinted that, at that. But I wanted to pull that out because I think it is impressive how you can see that so clearly being an immigrant just like all the black and brown immigrants that they're talking about right Mm -hmm. those immigrants not you Audrey but (laughs) those you know these these Mm -hmm. potential 5,000 Afghan families that may be rolling into Indiana or whatever Mm -hmm. and that the red carpet that get rolled out for for you as compared to so many other I mean that immigrant statement to me is just so powerful because everyone is uh, uh, ancestor, has an ancestor who was an immigrant. And even now, so many relationships are with people who weren't originally from here. So mm-hmm. I think that is probably, outside of just outright discrimination, I think that is probably one of the most offensive things because that touches everyone, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and, and so I appreciate you just kind of highlighting that point of not that kind of immigrant. I appreciate that. Um, I want to get back to some of the data um, because we talked about how the data reflects that women-owned business owners have struggled through the pandemic specifically. Um, We know that there's been a mass exodus of women out of the workforce over over, uh, the pandemic. And we also know that there are parameters provided by the government to help women-owned and minority-owned businesses. Specifically, I think, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, that both of your uh, companies have been designated by the state as women business enterprises. Mm -hmm. And Akilah, I think you're a minority uh, business enterprise. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I'd like to know from each of you, it's my understanding that those designations have been established to provide more opportunities more leverage. But I want to know if that is really what you see on the ground. In other words, do you find that those designations provide your business access to more opportunities, more capital, more resources? And I'm asking simply because I'm I'm unaware. That's something I don't know anything about. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Akilah, I'll start with you. Oh, Sure. Pretty sure it's going to be a little bit different. Um, So I will say I am MBE, WBE. I have a DBE, ACDBE, Hub Zone, which is a federal designation. I have all of that. I think it is beneficial for Google. (laughs) I have a lot of people checking out the website, checking out social media, LinkedIn. That is good. Yes. Traction does not equal dollars. Right. So... I tell people that your certification is a cherry on top and not the ice cream. Because once people Google my business, they're looking for how can you solve my problem? Uh, What are your differentiators? What is your differential advantage? What have you done so that I can trust you? So it is there to get the search engines going, but it's the value add when they're searching you. If um, one, I should call you. Two, can you solve my problem? And three, can I trust you? And that is prevalent. So I lead with construction management, complex design, commercial construction. And that's a differentiator because I've done um, high-end $100 million projects, $300 million projects. So that differentiates me. And then I'm a builder. I'm boots to the ground. That's a differentiator. I can speak in construction terms, and I can also make stakeholders feel comfortable in the fact of the, the progression of the project. And then they're like, oh, by the way, she has this certification. And when I hear people who are in the room and they mention that to 
towards the end of the meeting, they're like, okay, that's great, but let's talk about how you solve these five problems for, you know, this company here in Indianapolis, and, and that's what it is, but when you get to the project, you get the contract, that diversity spin is all the conversation. It's she's exceptional and we have this diverse spin. But until that contract signed, for me in construction, which is so far behind most industries, it is the value add of solving problems, being exceptional, and then we get her under contract, yay, she's WBE, MBE, and we can get that diverse spin. Okay, okay. Audrey, what's your experience? Most of our revenue doesn't come from the fact that we're a woman-owned business. We we have been for a long time, and we pursued it because it was recommended. So we'd already had business relationships. We were already doing business, and then it was an opportunity to pursue. I will agree with Akila. It gets you in the room, but you only stay in the room if you can actually do the work. Yeah. There are definitely examples where at the end of the conversation, it might come up as a conversation that we are women-owned and that that might be beneficial to their diversity and inclusion goals. Right, right. But it does get us it gets us the opportunity to have conversations. But again, it's got to be about the work that you can do, that you can do it for that level of organization. Yeah. Over the years, the protocols around it have changed as well. There definitely was a period of time um, in the early 2000s where the way the percentages were calculated on bids for the state work were beneficial for local businesses. And I think that's the part I'm sad that changed. So if they gave more than the basic minimum, they were more rewarded in the scoring process. And I actually think that led to NetLogix having some amazing opportunities to actually show the full scale of what we could do. Mm-hmm. And then it led us opportunities to be a prime vendor ourselves. So I do think some of those changes have been detrimental to allowing businesses to scale and grow. But you only ever get invited to the table if you can do the work. Yeah. But yep. it does get you in rooms that you wouldn't get in otherwise as a small business and starting out. And it also gets you connected to a business community yeah. who help each other out as well. And I I wanted to shout out uh, the city of Indianapolis. They have been instrumental with the certification and telling people what you do. So there is benefits for the entities that help you get that certification. But again, um, they're not going to put their name out there um, with your organization unless you are exceptional and proven. And it just always is good to have someone mention your name in business settings you're not in. Sure, absolutely. So so we talked briefly about the pandemic and... Some of the stats I um, mentioned really don't reflect the number of women entrepreneurs and business owners that closed their doors over the pandemic, right? Um, But yet, Audrey and Akila, you've both found ways for your businesses to not only survive, but thrive through the pandemic. So I'd, I'd like to know what you learned as a business owner from the pandemic and what solutions have you intentionally implemented in your business model or your business business rhythm or your business culture to prevent your specific company from encountering similar fail factors that so many encountered during the pandemic? It had to be a huge learning. So what have you learned and what have you done to pivot, change, implement new strategies to make sure that you're not susceptible in the future? I can remember coming home. I've been on a business trip. Um, They were regular. I've been on a business trip and I came home and parts of the world were starting to close down and we knew it was coming and having conversations with the team and the decision was made that I would record a video. I can still remember recording the video to tell everybody 
we don't know what's going on because obviously I'm not a scientist, I have no background in healthcare, um, what was going on and what we were going to do. And our first guide was we were going to do it together. I'm eternally grateful to our HR team because what they then did is we did weekly lunch and learn conversations. Everybody on a Zoom call, there was always a topic, but then generally it was just a, everybody can see everybody, we're checking in with everybody. These are the things we have available if you're having issues because people were homeschooling, people were caring for sick relatives, people didn't know that they could see people. We emphasized that we had invaded your home. So if your child came in on a call, don't apologize. Right. You used to go to work and now your child used to have a home, so don't apologize. We're getting work done the way we can do it in the current circumstances. We really relied on our team to come together. We had the advantage of we'd been consultants. We could pick up and go to a new location. We could work in a variety of places. We already had people who had flexible work schedules, so technology-wise, we were positioned to be able to do that, but we didn't know what was coming. We did a hunker down for three months to figure out what was going to happen to our clients. We saw some clients back away. We saw contracts get canceled, but we did see other opportunities open up. Um, We've always balanced our work between public and private sector, and we're really, really grateful for the public sector because the public sector had to step up and do a lot through the pandemic. So we were fortunate to be at the table with them and we've been able to do some really meaningful projects for the locations that we work in. But it has been really challenging. And it goes back to what I said earlier, having your business in the situation that if you sold it, nobody would make more money from you. We knew exactly where our discretionary spend were, where our options were, where our flexibility was. We were on the phone with our banks immediately. We we had other banking relationships when opportunities for PPP loans came out. We had enough connections through that network that we've built over the years. And then I was really grateful to be able to support other smaller businesses and make referrals into the great things the Indie Chamber was doing, mm-hmm. to be able to help other businesses and to reach out and make connections. It's been a period I never want to live through again, <laughs> but I think if you can look at your business having gone through that. And the reason I'm in this position is a previous friend of mine was in the design business and she'd gone through the Great Recession and had exactly the same experience. So her lessons learned from that had been translated into my business and I think set us up for greater success. But it is down to our team. Our team have pulled together, they've rolled up their sleeves, they've worked on other projects, they've worked in other time zones, they've done what was necessary to keep us all going. And I'm eternally grateful to all of them. You just continue to emphasize the importance of your network, right? The network. Akila, what did you learn during the pandemic as a business owner? Yeah, so mine's a little bit different. The pandemic hit, I was I was growing a business, just starting and growing. So it was not us versus them, meaning my business versus my kids and my husband. So it was a collaborative effort, being that I had four kids in elementary schools with eight Zooms before 10 a.m. Wow. We had to strategically work together. So from from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m., it was strictly social media. Let me get out there, get in front of it, um, put in some situations and be authentic, right? I have four kids running a business and a husband, and I want to make sure that he's successful because his business didn't shut down. He was in um, retail and incorporated. It wasn't work-life balance. It was like we're going to all in this together. And some of the things, um, we're doing construction differently for the Darden Group, and one of the things um, that I'm doing is Instagram Live on the job site, and that came from my kids. 
they were in it with me. We were in the office. I was taking Zoom calls with four kids in the background, taking Zoom calls. And they mentioned, Mom, you should do a video on the construction site. And that was instrumental in workforce development. So it was incorporating everyone into the day, working when others were not. I had to stay in front of the the social media and stuff like that. What I learned in the pandemic is that nothing is rigid. Everything was static, go with the flow. Everyone's dealing with certain things. So put it out there that I'm dealing with this, but I'm able to move on because encouraging other people to um, press on and that you are not flawless, that you are trying to figure this thing out and juggling, I think propelled us to where we are now. We got our first contract with a global Uh, manufacturer because of the fact that we were always on social media we had that trust factor and that we were juggling multiple things and still finding successes out of that that's awesome so let's shift gears a bit from business ownership to business operations Um, Large companies have for years wrongly asserted that the lack of diversity in their ranks was due to a shortage in the diverse talent pipeline. We just can't find diverse talent. We've heard this fallacy for years. However, I have even readily admitted that traditional recruiting mechanisms may not always prove successful when specifically recruiting diverse talent. And I'm sure those advertising, recruiting, and marketing, Akila, you talked about that earlier, maybe those challenges have been heightened for small businesses even in the wake of remote work so what I'd like to know from you all how you've been successful in hiring recruiting and retaining diverse talent in your specific stem fields Absolutely. I'll take this on 38th and Sheridan um, is a Cook Medical and Goodwill facility. And um, the goal was 100% participation for subcontractors with the thing of uh, people of color ownership. So they wanted to stick with MBE um, solely. So we were able to do 97% MBE and 3% WMVBE. But the second thing to that was they wanted the project built by diverse individuals. They wanted to grow the workforce in 46218 in the Far East side. events just don't work. Um, So we have the DEI initiative that everybody knows about, but it's not um, just the DEI. It's the acceptance and the belonging. And you have to show people real time if they're going to be accepted and um, belong in that space. So um, in doing construction differently with intention of diversity, once we did the Instagram Live, we're showing people different facets of construction. You don't necessarily have to be a mason. You can, you know, swing steel or you can manage like um, what I'm doing. Also, to getting on TV, like that's not my thing. But just being out there on the construction site, seeing equipment go behind me, people were like, I want to do that. I never knew. It's exposure and then gaining that experience and providing free construction education and safety certifications um, and showing that we want you intentionally. So we were intentional about saying we want to hire people of color. Yeah. And we're going to grow you. And if you go from um, technical and then you can get into management and then you can get to the C-suite or even an entrepreneur, we have the steps and we'll allow you to do that. And getting on TV and saying uh, your past does not determine your future. We will take you if you have barriers. And we were able to, you know, talk to 95 people from that television conversation. I'm hiring Hoosiers to say, here, what do you want to do? 
one thing we did ask is, what do you want to do? Not here's the opportunities. What do you want to do? And some people were like, I'm interested in landscaping. They got a touch point with the landscaper who has in their contract that they have to hire 10% Marion County residents. So there is intentionality, there's direction, there's touch points, and we're following up with those individuals to say, hey, what happened and what additional services do you need? So we have the CDC coming in in the area to, one, understand the residents of the area and what services they provide um, or need. So it's, it's, I hate to say wraparound, but we have support mm-hmm. and opportunities and working with all these different entities who are intentional about diversity is how we do things a little bit different. Hiring events, people are not going to come to you. They want you to come to them and show that they will be accepted. That's, that's really great. Audrey, you have things to add there? So what we've done is we get pats on the back because we're women-owned business. We have women in the C-suite with me. Uh, we're predominantly, actually, we majority women. But they, the reality was we weren't as diverse as we could be. We weren't as diverse as we should be. So we've then been intentional about where are we creating barriers. Um, we've rewritten our job descriptions. We've rewritten our job applications to focus on what you truly need to do. Um, the default is always a four-year degree, which is the complete definition of hypocrisy if I own the company. And then what we've done is we we have interns because if we're going to grow a pipeline of talent, we've got to find interns. So we've been much more intentional about where we get our interns from because people will apply to the company. And again, it's what you look like. So we've got to find people that they feel that they're comfortable because they've already heard about us. We've had a long-standing relationship with the Indiana Latino Institute taking their interns in and giving them opportunities doesn't mean they always want a job doing what we do at the end of the term but at least they've had that exposure and they've been able to consider it yeah we've had interns who've gone on to be very successful we've had interns who've kept in touch with us and come back over time so it's those small steps that we're intentional about it and then within the company we emphasize and i heard you talk about this last week that the case of diversity has been made eons ago right. we focus on the fact that we're diverse by design and we try to make sure that everybody's aware that that means everything it means geography it means age it means gender it means sexual orientation it means all of those things create complete people who produce better products for our clients because when we're presented with a problem with the client we don't know the answers we're going to figure it out but the more people you've got at the table so our profiling that we use when we hire people creates a language within the company about what type of people we are and that language is how we talk about each other as opposed to the boxes we might be checking. Sure. I think that's created a more intentional, diverse conversation in the company. But we are front and center about the organizations we're supporting to try and create pipelines of talent for people to join us from non-traditional routes. We're not there yet, but that's something we are intentional about every single year in our corporate goals. Yeah, so what I hear is you're you're beginning to invest earlier, right? Both yeah. of you have basically said we're investing earlier in the pipeline. We're not just waiting to you have all the frills and all the requirements. We're investing earlier, exposing you to opportunities and then allowing you if you're interested to help drive that path to get you that that's awesome. Go ahead. Akita. And I have one more thing. I know a lot of people say we can't find and I'm like I'm glad you said that. Let's help you find. Right. So, um it's not just saying there's no diverse talent. I'm going to show you how to do that. And with the 100% participation, it wasn't you have to do it. They had 18 pages of MBE subcontractors in every single trade 
to call on to get to that goal. So it's it's not just saying we want to do something. It's showing people how to do it. That's great. Yeah, that, that's great. Because the reality is a lot of people don't have that network, right? Yeah. I mean, I know as I've talked about these things, part of my conversation and advice has been build your network, build your diverse network, right? Yes. If you don't have a Latinx or a black or African-American, build that network. But that has to start somewhere, right? Yes. That doesn't just happen out of the blue. So at least having a lead or some opportunities to say, okay, well, if you don't know some, here's at least places you can start, obviously helps make that happen more efficiently. Absolutely. So, so as we come to a close, I, I want to ask you all some advice resources, guidance that you would give others interested in becoming an entrepreneur. Specifically, what characteristics do you believe that you possess or are necessary to possess in order for you to be a successful, diverse female entrepreneur? And then finally, what tip, tool, or resource would you advise any woman or diverse woman interested in starting their own business to pursue if they need help or guidance or even encouragement? Great question. There were actually sometimes at the beginning, I think I felt like there was too much information available. So you could constantly spend your time researching and not know where to go. Yeah. Depending on what type of business it is, I think that if you've got an industry, there'll be an industry organization that's associated with that. I'd highly recommend you get engaged with any industry organizations that are participating. So for example, for us, we do a lot of project management. The Project Management Institute would be a good place to start to at least build a network of people that you could call on. Sure. From the business ownership side of things, I got great advice and benefit from being part of the NARBO chapter here in Indianapolis. This, the Chamber of Commerce has some great small business programs. And then the um, F, Small Business Administration, they have programs that you can leverage and train. But your bank... Go and ask your mm -hmm. bank what they do in the business space mm. and have a conversation with them. And if they don't do anything, find a bank that does. Right, right. Find a bank that will have a conversation with you about it. And then back to what Akila said at the beginning, who do you know that already owns a business that you could have a business conversation with and sound the advice out? And then thank that person, take the name of who they gave you and go to the next person. But you need to have... You need a banking relationship, you need financial advice, and then you need somebody who's looking at your business plan with you and seeing what you can do to move forward. And those organizations provide that opportunity. And then certifying yourself exposes you to a lot of good advice as well. So if you can qualify for a certification, pursue it because they'll validate your information too. Okay. Absolutely. That's great. Um, so I went to the bank to open up a business account. They told me about SCORE. SCORE is with the FBA. They have, um, I think, three locations here in Indiana. Indianapolis, it is free, and they ask you some questions in your interest, and they put you with a retired CFO, business owner, COO, and they break down your industry, finances, and what you need to do, and wow. it's for free, and you can go as many times as you want to go. So SCORE was very beneficial because not only did I meet two individuals, one in finance, one in construction, but they gave me access to 10 other people that could help me with the questions that they didn't know, and it was all free, so I didn't even know that but I got that from opening up a business account but what I wanted to say about characteristics is confidence yeah confidence because you will hear the word no a bunch of times and you will second third fourth guess your decision and um, doing things that you're not comfortable with will start to be comfortable like this doing the podcast or even doing videos I created an online course and I had to get in front of a camera that didn't talk to me I didn't see if anybody was smiling or not but I had to adjust just 
to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And another thing is don't look at the comments and likes, right? People are looking at your content, whether they like or comment, keep going. Oh, that's great. That's really, really great advice, especially in this world of likes and you know, all yes. that. That That's really great. I, I want to thank you, ladies. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you for the advice, the encouragement. I'm sure there are so many aspiring entrepreneurs, particularly, again, women and diverse women who need to hear your experiences, who need to hear your journey, who need to prepare themselves for the challenges, the yeah. obstacles, get their game plan together, get their business plan together, get their network together, yeah. and then personally work on their confidence, work on their risk aversion, mm -hmm. yes. and be ready for no, right? <laughs> Once, twice, and three times over. Thank you ladies so much for sharing your time and experience with us today on the Freedom Forum. We appreciate you, and we'll see you again next time.